We come now to a time of looking at God's word. Uh, this morning we have two passages that we're going to be reading. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, and then Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes in First Timothy chapter 3, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And now from the book of Acts, chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching, preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands, laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now this morning, um, the full title of my message would be something like this deacons and the ladies who serve with them. But an even better title would be this, Diaconal Charity and its Influence on Western Society. Let's pray as we begin. Father, grant to us your wisdom and your Holy Spirit in guiding us through uh, essential truths that we find in these passages uh, concerning the inauguration Uh, the installation and the service of deacons, and also, Lord, the ladies who serve with them. We pray for uh, much ability to think of the significance of the role of diaconal charity. We ask that you would uh, grant us insight uh, to see the applications even to our day and our age, our culture. We commit this time to you, thanking you for your word, thanking you that your word is trustworthy, that it guides us, it equips us, it enables us to be ready and prepared and able to do every good work that you've called us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with this question this morning. What made Christianity great and powerful, powerful enough to penetrate the pagan culture? so that from a band of about 120 disciples on the day of Pentecost, around the years 30 to 33, this movement had grown to become the official religion of the Roman Empire 
just 300 years later? Well, there are three factors. The first is the resurrection message. There was an utter conviction that the crucified Messiah and Savior had risen from the dead and that he was leading his church even then from the right hand of his father upon high. Secondly, there was a willingness to face persecution, even persecution unto death, which validated the sincerity of their beliefs. It displayed a moral courage and having convictions that the disciples were willing to die for. But then thirdly, we need to consider the role and significance of diaconal charity. The ministry of charity that was inaugurated by the church through its deacons, which overcame and overturned the pagan values of the Roman Empire. Now, this last point is really our focus this morning. When Christ, through the church, established the ordained office of deacons, he established the ministry of diaconal charity. Diaconal charity. Those merciful good works that are motivated by the second greatest commandment, which gave the church a calling and ministry that was unknown at that time throughout the entire pagan Roman Empire. So this morning, my main truth claim can be stated this way. It highlights the significance of the office of the diaconate. Caring for the needy redefined the course of Western values and Western civilization to the glory of God. I'm going to say that again. Caring for the needy redefined the course of Western values and Western civilization to the glory of God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5:16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the historical significance of diaconal charity. I know this is a sweeping and global statement to make this claim of the impact and changing the values of Western civilization. But just think about this for a moment. Even as we can say that the Christian doctrine of creation provided the foundation for the rise of empirical science, we can likewise say that the major emphasis the church gave to diaconal charity serving the needy within society transformed the cultural institutions of Western civilization to the establishment of the value of all of human life. And we can trace this transformation to what Christ did in establishing the office of the deacon. So four points this morning. I want us to see first that Christ gave his church deacons and then Christ set their qualifications Thirdly, Christ defined their calling. And then lastly, Christ blessed their impact. So the first point, Christ gives his church deacons. Now, this is an obvious truth because Paul's given instructions to the church at Ephesus about their qualifications. But whereas the New Testament gives us lots of information in lots of places that help us to define the, the office of the overseer, who is the elder, who is the shepherd teacher of the church, the New Testament does not do this for the diaconate. That's a huge, huge difference. In fact, there's only one place really to look in order to see exactly what deacons are supposed to do in terms of the function, in terms of their ministry. And that's what we find here in Acts chapter 6 in these verses where Christ first inaugurated the office of the diaconate. You see, here in the early church, a significant ministry problem arose. 
the church practiced a daily distribution to help the poor within the church community. But the Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows were being overlooked in this distribution. There was a language issue between those who mostly spoke Greek and those who, who were the Hebrews who were spoke Aramaic. Now, this overlooking was not intentional, but it was a big issue. So the apostles, as the shepherds and leaders of the church, uh, provide the solution. They have the congregation choose seven men according to the qualifications that they've set. The apostles then set their hands upon them, laying their hands upon them, the act of ordination. And then they're given the responsibility to carry out the duty of the daily distribution. They were now ordained and installed to take care of this ministry of charity to the poor among them. The good works that are required by the second greatest commandment in which we are to love one another even as we love ourselves. So the apostles, as the shepherd teachers, set up this ministerial division with respect to service. Uh, and that tells us the tells the church that this needed service is very, very important. So look at what the apostles say. Verse two, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, it's not as though they say because that service is beneath us, but rather their point is that this ministry is so vital and it is so large, it is so significant that we, the apostles, can't be both the elders of the church and those who also minister the charity at the same time. Because as shepherd teachers, they were called to devote themselves, as they say, to the diakonia, the service of the word. They were required to to do the preaching and teaching of the body of Christ. But in contrast, these seven men, seven men were ordained and officially set apart to the diaconia of the table, what we see in verse 2, where the table then is, uh, is a synecdoche, a part for the whole, that represents the feeding of the hungry, the feeding of the poor, uh, the taking care of those in need. Now, it is from this word diaconia that these men and their office receive their official title as deacons. So Christ, through his apostles, gives the church deacons, the diaconate, this ministry that's committed to charity. Now, the second point, Christ is going to set up their qualifications. And here we look at Acts 6 and 1 Timothy. So back in Acts 6, the qualifications are stated in verse 3. They are to be men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And then verse 5, though it said specifically of Stephen, we can assume that this is also true of the other six. Men are full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. We have a larger set of qualifications. But really, these are just an, ex an expansion upon what it means to be of good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit. So verse 8, Paul begins, deacons likewise. Well, the word likewise there is referring back to what Paul had said about the overseers of the church, that in a similar fashion, that in a similar moral fashion, these men are to be qualified for the office. They need to have a similarity of, of moral respectability and, and quality, uh, just like the elders did. And then he goes in to give several specific kinds of things. They're to be dignified. Uh, they're not to be double-tongued. That means men who speak out of both sides of their mouth. Not addicted to much wine. Therefore, they're, they're to be moderate men. 
not greedy for dishonest gain, very significant because they're going to be handling money, and then a clear conscience. They must hold the mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience, meaning not a single trace of doubt, and not a single uh, uh, issue of hypocrisy in terms of their faith in Christ. Then Paul goes on to say they also need to be tested first and then let them serve as deacons. So they needed to be men of, of, of quality, experienced Christian living and then blameless. If they prove themselves blameless, then that is nothing standing in the way of their moral character. Then let them serve. Now, what's interesting is that at verse 11, the subject changes uh, without any uh, warning. The subject changes and it says their wives likewise. Now, that's the English Standard Version translation. Uh, but there is a translation question here whether this should be the word wives or not. And not all translations, for instance, give us that same wording. In fact, some translations will put down in a footnote the idea of deaconess. That is, that would be like the female form of the word deacon. Uh, they would translate the Greek word as deaconess. But there's no Greek manuscript that actually has the word deaconess. And there's no real reason to translate the Greek word there that can mean wife or it can mean woman. There's just simply no reason uh, to do this unless you already believe that there ought to be ordained official deaconesses in the church. Because in the New Testament, there's no real parallel to the word deacon in terms of deaconess. Now, the New American Standard goes with the word woman. And that's the most literal translation. So really, the question is between the, the wives of the deacons or women. But in either case, uh, these are ladies who are associated with the deacons. They're not deacons themselves, but they're clearly associated with them and their service. Now, the point that we can agree upon is this. Whether it's one or the other, whether it's the wives of deacons or whether it's women uh, in general, who are called to associate with the deacons in terms of their service, the point is, it's clear. In terms of the order that Christ has given to the church, there are supposed to be women associated with the deacons who work with them in terms of the calling to the ministry of charity. So these wives or women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, uh, sober-minded, uh, faithful in all things. That is to say, they are to have notable and godly Christian character. Very possibly they are the wives of the deacons, but it could also be possible with these other women as well, serving with the deacons in terms of the ministry of charity. And then we come to verse 12, where we have the household and family qualification, which is essentially the same as with elders. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. And then we come to verse 13, how this service is commended. Uh, with the elders, the aspiration to be an elder was called a, a good or noble task. Here, uh, the reward for serving is a good standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the point is this. The qualification for the men who are called to be deacons and then for the women who are to serve with them, to be associated with them. We, we find here characteristics of moral integrity, people who are trustworthy, who can take care of people in a trustworthy manner. Because when people need charitable help, they are vulnerable. They are hurting. 
they will often feel unworthy or even embarrassed by needing help. They may feel like they're going to be judged as failures because they, they can't fully take care of themselves. It takes godly people to care for them in a way that upholds their dignity as human beings created in the image of God. We go on to our third point. Christ defines their calling. Christ defines the calling of the diaconate and the women who are associated with them. Now, something I didn't say last week and something I haven't said prior in terms of this message is that when Christ gave the church its organization with respect to elders and then deacons, what Christ was doing was an extension of his own twofold earthly ministry. That is to say, first of all, the office of the elder reflects Christ as the shepherd of the sheep. And the office of the deacon reflects Christ as the servant of his people. As the primary calling of the elder is to shepherd and to feed the church spiritually, that reflects Christ as the good shepherd who feeds his people. And as the primary calling of the diaconate is to imitate the second aspect of the earthly ministry of Christ, his servant role, the diaconate is called to meet the needs of the needy, to serve in acts of ministry, to demonstrate true charity. Now, that means we need to reflect a little bit more on the servant ministry of Christ in order to find the content and fullness of what the diaconal ministry uh, is constituted of. Now, think about this for a moment. We know that Jesus went about doing good, especially to those who were oppressed in some way, to those who were in need. He healed the sick. He healed the disabled. He fed the hungry. In his servant role of doing good to the needy, Jesus was demonstrating how we are to live out the second greatest commandment. He was showing us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. He was showing us how to live out the golden rule, how to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He was showing us how to be the good Samaritan, how to be a neighbor to others. He was showing us how to minister to, and Jesus calls them, quote, the least of these, as if you were doing so under Christ. How to give food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty to care for the stranger, to clothe the naked, and to visit the sick and those in prison for the sake of the gospel. What Jesus taught and what Jesus did defined the nature of good works as charity, namely serving the needs of those who cannot return the favor. Consider what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 32, verse 33, and I'm reading the New American Standard Translation here. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So the calling of the deacons in imitation of Christ is specifically to give mercy, to give help, to do good works, genuine acts of charity to those who really cannot return the favor at all. And the service resembles that of Christ. Christ did for us what none of us can ever repay. 
And that's the point. Genuine care for the needy. Christ established this office of the diaconate to inaugurate the mercy ministry, the ministry of charity, both for the needs of the people of God and to alleviate the suffering of the world. In this way, through the charity of God's people, the church fulfills what Christ said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is because all people are created in the image of God, even the most needy in society. And this is because all people are properly the ministry of the church. This is because God, our Savior, as Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, because God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Since there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all. And from the first chapter of Timothy, who came into this world to save sinners. Now, our last point is this, that Christ blesses their impact. That is the impact of a diaconate ministry. Now, this really tells us why the ministry of the diaconate, along with the godly women who serve with them, why this ministry of charity is so very important, why it has proven to be so very important over the past 2,000 years. So I want to repeat this main claim that I stated at the beginning. Caring for the needy redefined the course of Western values and Western civilization to the glory of God. Now, this is what Christ blessed, the ministry of charity, the essential calling of the diaconate, because it rescued human beings in Western civilization from the degraded and degenerate values of the pagan Greco-Roman world. Now, let me explain how this happened. This involves first looking at the character of the Greco-Roman culture, where we see that there were two forces at work that strongly opposed the church's charity. Two things taken for granted, two things operating within the pagan culture that the church came up against and the diaconal charity that it was called to. First, the pagan culture had a very low view of human life, a very low view. Human life was not considered sacred or special. It was not something to be protected simply because it was human. Human life had no inherent or intrinsic value. There was no sanctity of human life principle. Therefore, in the pagan culture, human life really only had value if it could make some contribution to society. Now, this low view of human life is what allowed the culture to practice infanticide, the outright killing of unwanted babies, and something then very closely connected infant abandonment uh, that most often led then to the death of the baby. You see, infanticide was widespread throughout the pagan Greco-Roman world. It was most often performed by drowning. Uh, babies were thrown into rivers. And the primary victims were babies with birth deformities or defects or babies that were sickly. Sometimes, though, babies were purchased from poor families and then these babies were used as sacrifices in pagan rituals. 
Large families were not the custom in the Greco-Roman world. So unwanted babies were drowned. Baby girls in this regard were far more vulnerable than baby boys. Infant abandonment was likewise practiced in cities and outside of cities. Uh, in cities, uh, there was a particular place where they could be left, left with a purpose to die. Uh, not at all like our fire stations where babies can be left and thereby be rescued so that they don't die. And when babies were left in the countryside, it was recognized that wild animals would be the ones to take their lives. The other widespread practice made possible by this very low view of human life was abortion. This was to cover up extramarital affairs because honorable marriage was almost extinct within the Roman Empire. Uh, marriage had been deprived of all moral character. A chaste wife was almost non-existent. So abortion by herbal drugs was widely practiced. The point is, human life was held in very low esteem. And the primary victims were human beings who were the most needy and the most vulnerable. Now, the second force within the culture pertained to how giving to others was practiced. That is, when you would give someone else something. The way this was practiced was, well, practiced according to what we would call the principle of quid pro quo. That is to say, you gave something to someone else because you expected something in return. You gave in order to put someone in debt to you. You gave because you anticipated a returned benefit. You gave a favor expecting a favor. That was the standard for giving anything to someone else. A gift, a present, money, or a favor. It was to put the other person in your debt. And therefore, you never gave something to someone who could not actually help you out. And because this was so, the diaconal acts of true charity were seen suspiciously by the culture. Especially because those who were being helped by charity were those who were most in need. These were people who were not contributing to society. They were considered often the unwanted weight upon society. And all of that flowed from how paganism viewed human life. Human life only had value if it was contributing something positive to society. The only people worthy of help are those who would have the ability to help you in return. Now we note then that diaconal charity violated both of these pagan practices because here's what the church did. It rescued and adopted babies that were slated to be killed. Uh, Christians actually patrolled rivers where babies might be tossed in and drowned in order to save them. Christians also noted where babies were going to be abandoned and rescued them. And these rescued babies were adopted into Christian families. Of course, the church saved those babies that were least wanted. It saved babies with physical imperfections and handicaps and disabilities. Uh, these babies were adopted and raised and loved and valued. The church became the sanctuary for those most devalued by pagan society. At the level of teaching and doctrine, 
the church waged war against the dehumanization of human life by proclaiming that all human life is created in the image of God. But at the level of diaconal charity, the church fought by treating all of human life as valuable and sacred, rescuing and saving, loving and adopting those society had rejected. This diaconal charity reached out to all people in society who were weak, who were pressed, who were cast out, who were abandoned. Early on, the, early on in the early church, the church set up funds to support widows who had no family. Then it expanded this fund to include all of those who were in need, uh, ranging from burial funds for the poor to redemption funds to give slaves their freedom. The diaconal charity of the church was so central to the life of the church that even in the midst of the most terrible persecutions that the church endured in the first 250 years of its existence, this diaconal charity never ceased. And then Christ blessed this work of charity. Everywhere that the church spread in Western culture and Western civilization, everywhere the church grew, diaconal charity changed the practices of the culture. And from the fourth century to the middle of the 20th century, diaconal charity was becoming and had become the moral norm of Western values in Western culture. Was this practice with consistency? No. I mean, by the church, yes. By the culture, no. But this new standard was increasingly set into laws and into societal practices. Eventually, the, the position of Western Europe became this. All of human life is to be considered inherently valuable. Now, this is why the law codes of more and more Western nations gave moral and legal protections to the most vulnerable in society. As Christ blessed the works of diaconal charity, the values of Western culture were increasingly transformed. Now, I want to conclude with this. I want you to think about something. You are doubtless as aware as I am that our culture today in the United States is deforming and returning again to pagan values and practices. We see a lower and lower esteem for human life. At the beginning of human life, in terms of life in the womb and even babies, at the end of human life, in terms of the elderly, and the whole process of movement toward euthanasia. What must the church do in response? Three things. First, continue to hold firmly to the resurrection message. We must never waver in our conviction that Christ has risen from the dead and Christ now reigns over this world and over his church at the right hand of the majesty on high. Secondly, we must be willing to face persecution from this pagan culture, even if necessary unto death, because nothing so validates the sincerity of what we confess and believe than the moral courage to suffer for our convictions. And thirdly, we must never cease our diaconal charity. 
the, the good works that the church did toward the least of society overcame and overturned the pagan values of the Roman Empire. Caring for the needy redefined the course of Western values and Western civilization to the glory of God. It did so once. It can do so again. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I would ask that we all would have a, a deeper appreciation for the significance of the calling of the diaconate and the women who are called to serve with them and to recognize that the, the ministry of charity, uh, fulfilling uh, the second greatest commandment, living out uh, the golden rule, uh, being the good Samaritan uh, to folks who can never return that to those who are the most needy within our society, uh, that living this way and doing things this way is pleasing to you. It's the very thing that you blessed and coupled with what the Christian faith taught, how the Christian faith, how Christian people behaved, worked a, a, a proper way of bringing about huge and tremendous changes in the course and direction of the values of Western culture. But today, Father, we're losing those values. They are being eroded. Uh, no longer do people think of, of, of true charity and the way uh, diaconal charity was practiced. Things have changed radically within the last 50 years in our culture. And so we pray, Lord, um, though these uh, events are discouraging, let us not ourselves be discouraged. Help us to remember that what you did once, you were able to do again. Help us to be faithful to the eternal message of the gospel truth. Help us to so believe this message that we'd be willing to suffer for it. And then help us to continue at all times to care for those in our society that so deeply need our care. To honor everyone as those who are created in your image people for whom Christ has died, that we may so shine our good works, our light, that even the pagans will see our good works and give glory to you who are in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.